there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. It's a privilege to talk to you this morning on a topic from which I shrank at the beginning, not with reference to this particular invitation, but for several years I avoided this topic entirely. It was one which re really was not of any interest to me, and I was dragged, as it were, kicking and screaming into the question of feminism because there were so many very strident voices saying things which I felt were unscriptural, and I finally felt that it was time to make a statement of my own. And as a result of this and the book that I wrote, I have been invited to speak several times on the topic. And I was just saying to Laura Williams this morning that I found it a little bit puzzling to know just exactly what was expected when these two topics were assigned. So you may not get just what you were expecting. But in speaking about the Christian reaction to the feminist movement, I won't go into very much detail about the secular feminist movement, but I do want to talk about uh, the so-called Christian feminist movement. And obviously we can't define the Christian reaction to that movement without knowing something about what feminism is. Whether secular or Christian, the primary plank in the feminist platform is this, that there are no differences between men and women other than biological. Now, you cannot be a feminist without accepting that tenet. The differences between men and women are purely biological. And I discovered last year that a great many women who are Christians have been calling themselves feminist without fully fathoming what was at stake in this term. I suspected that I was right on this definition, but I found it confirmed when I attended last fall, just about a year ago, the Evangelical Women's Caucus in Washington in which Christian feminism was defined and propounded. The caucus was called the Evangelical Women's Caucus. When I appeared there, several people who knew me came up with astonished looks on their faces and said, what in the world are you doing here? Well, I said, I'm a woman, am I not? And I'm an evangelical woman. And this is an evangelical women's caucus. What I didn't know at that point was that everyone was assumed to be feminist. I knew from the roster of speakers what to expect, but I didn't know that the delegates would be necessarily assumed to be feminist. Only one, uh, there was no opportunity whatsoever for any alternate viewpoint to be presented from the platform. There were workshops and there were small discussion groups in which one was allowed to present an alternative viewpoint. But the definitive lecture was given by Dr. Virginia Ramey Mollencott, which was a definition of Christian feminism, and she made it very clear that this was her position, that the differences between men and women are limited to the biological, that the cause of equality must be found in Scripture, regardless of what reinterpretation of the major doctrines, such as the doctrine of the creation, the doctrine of the Trinity, and the doctrine of inspiration may entail. Betty Friedan, certainly one of the most vocal of the secular feminists, at least those who do not claim to be Christians, states very clearly that feminism 
involves a sex role revolution which will restructure all institutions. Child rearing, education, marriage, the family, medicine, work, politics, economy, religion, psychological theory, human sexuality, and morality, even the very evolution of the race. If you want to call yourself a feminist, this is what you are working toward, a sex role revolution which will restructure all institutions. Dr. Molencott declared that the creation of man and woman was simultaneous rather than successive, with the man created first and then the woman, as has been traditionally understood from the second chapter of Genesis. I can't go into all the things on which he based her case. Everything that Paul has to say about the differentiation between the roles of men and women in the church, she declared, were the result of rabbinical prejudice. The roles of women and men are entirely interchangeable, although she made a fine distinction between interchangeability and reversal, as did also Mrs. Letha Scanzoni, who presented a, a case for egalitarian marriage. She said she's not talking about reversal of roles, but interchangeability. Dr. Molencott stated that the use of patriarchy in the Old Testament was simply God's conforming to a social system which already existed and by which his revelation was for a time limited rather than regarding it as a divinely ordained social framework which God used to illustrate certain heavenly truths. The statement was made in one of the workshops that the scripture nowhere forbids homosexual relationships. The only homosexuality forbidden in the first chapter of Romans, according to Dr. Molencott, is that which is adulterous. In other words, the commands were given to people who were already married and who were being unfaithful to their spouses by carrying on homosexual relationships. She said the scripture gives us no guidelines whatsoever for a lifelong commitment to a member of the same sex. Now, in an attempt to evaluate what was happening at this caucus, it appeared to me that what was being said was not that the world needs to be changed to suit Christian vision but that our Christian vision must now, in, 1970, in the 70s, be altered to suit the world. There were women from 30 states at this evangelical caucus. There was a very powerful atmosphere of emotionalism, of bitterness, of hurt, of desperation on the part of many of these women, and I felt that it was deplorable that for this bitterness, for this hurt, for the injustices which, who can deny, have been perpetrated in the church by both men and women, nothing but an anodyne was being offered rather than a cure. Women were being encouraged not to lay down their lives but to find self-fulfillment, to assert themselves, to ask, who am I, to express themselves. There was no call to lose our lives. Jesus said, he that findeth his life shall lose it. He that loseth his life for my sake, the same shall find it. I asked the question also of the few to whom I had opportunity to speak to whether or not we are to assume that equality is a desirable goal in both the church and the home. 
This seems to be the presupposition of the feminists, that equality is a Christian ideal and that it is one towards which we are obligated to work. Also, the question as to whether or not the Judaic framework within which God gave the revelation of the Old Testament was merely an accident, or was it sovereignly ordained, a sovereignly ordained order or point of reference within which God made known certain eternal truths. And of course, the fundamental question, which to me was highly ironic, the fact that this question was ignored altogether, is what is the meaning of femininity? And I found it a peculiar omission that at this women's caucus there was not one workshop out of some 30 or 40 workshops which dealt with femininity. Those who call themselves feminists were least prepared to deal with the question of the nature of femininity. I looked in vain in the list of workshops for some discussion of the meaning of womanhood or of masculinity or femininity. There were perhaps a dozen at the most men at this caucus and about, I think, three or four hundred women. And when I raised this question as to the meaning of femininity, it was merely brushed aside. So this morning, I'd like to try to get at what it means to be a man and a woman under God. And I would like to add my footnote to the remarks that were made earlier about the, the book called Let Me Be a Woman. It's my very strong conviction that men cannot possibly be men unless women are women, and women can't possibly be women unless men are men. And so everything that I have to say on the subject of womanhood is of tremendous importance to men. And of the few men that I've talked to who have read the book, I think all have commented on how much it has helped, it helped them to understand manhood, to have a clearer definition of womanhood. So I hope one of these days somebody will write a book called Let Me Be a Man, but the principles are all there. You can draw your own references from it. I have four things to say on this subject of what it means to be a man and a woman under God, and there's no way of getting at any of the questions of feminism, the ordination of women, position of women in the home, the role of women in the church, all of these things are dependent entirely upon our understanding of the meaning of masculinity and femininity. And until we deal with that question, we are treating the subject very superficially. And this was what I found extremely upsetting about the caucus in Washington. They began way far away from the foundation. So there are four things I'd like to say about what it means to be a man or a woman under God. First of all, the question, are we different? Secondly, were we made by someone? Third, were we made for something? And fourth, what is this mystery? So I will tell you, I've told you what I'm going to say. I'm going to try to say it, and then I'm going to try to remember to tell you what I've said so that there may be a little less discrepancy between what I mean to say and what you think I've said by the time I get through. We are being told by the secular feminists that the whole definition of masculinity and femininity is purely socially conditioned, has nothing to do with ontology. If we give our little boys tea sets and dolls and we give our little girls dump trucks and pickaxes, all of society can be revolutionized in another generation. Very interesting question. We are being told that whatever differences might be discovered, the ideal toward which we are to work is equality. Now, as C.S. Lewis says, equality is a legal fiction. It's really 
only a political term. It's very difficult to come up with any definition of what we mean by equality unless we are discussing only one quality. For example, you can't say, is T-bone steak equal to pears? It makes absolutely no sense, that question. If you are discussing T-bone steak with reference to protein content, then the question means something. It means, next, it means nothing unless you can pick out one characteristic which the two might have in common. So when you talk about the equality of men and women, you better be very clear as to exactly what it is you're talking about. The founders of our country looked upon equality as a, a legal necessity. And as Lewis says, although it is a legal fiction, it is necessary. It's not always, by any means, desirable or even workable. But it is a political way of treating people. There's no other way to treat people politically except as equals. Has this political category any place in either the church or the home? When we speak of equality in the home, are we speaking of uh, virtue, intelligence, physical strength, Longevity, size, beauty, all these things are really nonsensical. We can't for a moment claim that people are equal if we mean equally intelligent, equally rich, equally tall, equally fat, equally virtuous. The term is meaningless. We are not equal in any sense, in any of those senses. So I take issue with the feminist who insists that we should work toward a goal of equality. Are there any differences other than the biological? If you want to read some fascinating data on this subject, I recommend a book called The Inevitability of Patriarchy, written by Stephen Goldberg, in which he, he adduces some most interesting laboratory evidence which suggests that there are hormonal factors that determine the quality of aggressiveness in males and females. And if it's true, if it can be finally proved, and he has it very, very heavily documented, that's of interest to us as Christians because we are people who believe that the nature of things, the physical, the nature of the physical world has very deep significance in the invisible and the metaphysical world. So what Goldberg is saying would be uh, only a corroboration of some of the things which we Christians could already have told them, starting from the doctrine of creation. In 1 Corinthians 12, we read the, we have Paul's definitive passage on differences and distinctions. We haven't got time to read very much of that, but he uses the beautiful figure of the harmony in the body. As the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of working, but it is the same God who inspires them all in every one. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing, working of miracles, prophecy, distinguishing between spirits, kinds of tongues, interpretation of tongues, etc., etc. Then this charming analogy, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. We could bring that down into modern terms and say, if the woman should say, because I am not a man, therefore I am not a full member of the body of Christ, that doesn't make her any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the organs of the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single organ, where would the body be? It goes on to refer to the gifts which have been given by grace. God has so adjusted the body, giving the greater honor to the inferior part, that there may be no discord in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. 
If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So we are different. God has created us different. There are obvious physical differences which the feminists find themselves powerless to deny. They would like to. There are those hoping for some breakthrough biologically so that we will all be androgynous. And every effort is being made toward the appearance of unisex and toward the interchangeability of all roles. So the question is an open question as to whether or not we are different if we go only on the biological, whether the biological can affect the emotions, the intellect, whether there are differences which go much further back. In order to get at this question, obviously, the place where the Christian starts is with creation. And because I am a Bible-believing Christian, I believe that I was made by somebody. We read in the first chapter of Genesis that God created man, male and female. He created him in his own image. So we bear the image of God. There are a few ways in which we may legitimately speak of equality. I'd like to speak of it and then get rid of it, because it doesn't go very far. We were both created by God. We were both created in his image. In the second chapter, the third chapter of Genesis, we find that we were both responsible before God morally. Man and woman sinned equally. And moving into the New Testament, we find that we are equally the objects of God's grace. I think there can be no dispute at all about the meaning of equality with reference to these specific things. There is where the term begins to lose meaning after that. We were made in the image of God, which means many more things than we can go into here, but you theologians could explain this much better than I. We have a will, we have imagination. We have intelligence. We were made by somebody according to a design. That design was in the mind of God, perfect and complete. And when he expressed himself, this image which he had in his mind was perfectly expressed in the physical world. In order to judge anything at all from a can opener to a cathedral, you have to know what it's for. It's no good judging can openers by the same standards that you judge cathedrals. But you do have to know what each is for, and then you're in a position to make some kind of an assessment of whether or not it can fulfill the purpose for which the designer designed it. So in the simplest terms, I was made by somebody. I, as a woman, was designed and created by somebody who, the Bible tells me, made me in his image. I was made for something. The designer designs the object with its purpose in mind. I live very near the ocean, and every time I fly out of Boston, I get to see thousands of sailboats in the harbors. It's always lovely to fly from Boston through New York down to Philadelphia because you're seeing sailboats practically the whole way down. And from the air, you can tell that these were all designed more or less for the same purpose. There are great differences in boats, as you who sail boats know. I'm not a sailor myself. But they've all got similar types of hulls. They've all got a certain ratio between the beam and the keel and the height of the mast. And they've all got sails which are made of some kind of fabric rather than wood or steel. Now. The sailboat is designed with sailing in mind, and it's a very flimsy craft, but it's designed to take to itself the power of wind and wave. When you see a sailboat skimming along the horizon in beautiful speed and silence, you think what a perfect image of freedom. But the freedom of that sailboat is wholly contingent on obedience to certain laws. The sailor has to know what those laws are and bring the boat into subjection. 
And it's the weakness of the sail that makes it possible to take to itself the strength of the wind. It's the slimness of the keel, so vulnerable to tipping, which makes it possible to take to itself the strength of the water, of tide, of the direction of the rudder. So the design is, of course, in harmony with the purpose. The bird was designed to fly, the fish to swim, the animal to walk, and the bird can't swim, most birds, some birds can fly and swim, but they have to have equipment for both things. The pigeon looks most ungainly walking. It's designed mainly for flying. So the purpose for which we were made imposes certain limitations. The bird has to bear the weight of those wings, but it is the weight of those wings that enables him to fly. And I think part of the process of maturing as Christian men and women is the recognition of the limitations which have been imposed upon us. The child recognizes no limitations. What he sees, he wants. What he does not get, he screams for. And it's a painful process to realize that he cannot have the moon as a cookie, that his father cannot do everything, and much, what is much more unsettling and much worse to realize is that his father will not do all that he can. And so gradually as we mature, we accept the limitations which have been imposed upon our existence. And the older we get, the, the saner becomes our estimate of our own capabilities, as Paul said, have a sane estimate of your own capabilities. Most of us have an insane estimate. We either way underestimate what we can do, and that's a way of evading responsibility. Well, I don't have her talents, and I don't, the Lord never called me to do anything like that, and I've never been through anything like you've been through, etc., etc. And if you had to live with this husband, or if you had this ungrateful teenage child, you'd understand. And so we exonerate ourselves from responsibility by saying that we have no ability to do this or that. And on the other hand, we take on impossible tasks, which God never called us to do, and wonder why we fail. A sane estimate of our own capabilities only comes with the process of maturing. So if we were made by somebody for something, there are certain limitations imposed upon that design, certain limitations which are integral to that design. Now I find in the second chapter of Genesis a marvelous description in detail of how God went about creating these two creatures, man and woman. You remember how after each creation of every created thing, God recognized that it was good. And we find him saying it is very good about every single thing he had made until he came to one thing, and then he found something which was not good, and that was that man should be alone. And then we have a wonderful picture of God and Adam reviewing a circus parade of animals going by as though they were looking over everything from the aardvark to the zebra to decide whether or not one of these could fill the bill to make a companion for this man for whom God said it was not good that he should be alone. And the whole parade went by. I can well imagine Adam having a friend who was a dog or maybe a horse or even a unicorn. But there was something lacking in every one, and Adam was given the opportunity, the responsibility to name those animals, and I, my mind boggles when I think of the imagination that Adam had in order to name all those creatures. And then God had to do something else. The creature was obviously not there. That would be a help meet for this man. And ladies and gentlemen, may I implore you to expunge forever from your vocabularies that corruption, helpmate, does not occur in the Bible. It's not a noun, a compound noun. The word help is there, and the word meet is simply the old English word meaning suitable. God was looking for a help suitable for this man. And so he caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he took out of his rib, out of his side, a rib from which he fashioned this creature called a woman. 
And ladies and gentlemen, may I implore you to expunge forever from your vocabularies that corruption, helpmate, does not occur in the Bible. It's not a noun, a compound noun. The word help is there, and the word meet is simply the Old English word meaning suitable. God was looking for a help suitable for this man. And so he caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he took out of his rib, out of his side, a rib from which he fashioned this creature called a woman. And he brought her to Adam. Now, this defines my position. As a woman, I was made by somebody. I was made for something. Scripture makes it unmistakably clear that woman was made for man. And in case you didn't get it in the second chapter of Genesis, Paul reiterates it in the eleventh chapter of first, in the ninth chapter of First Corinthians. And he says it practically in words of one syllable, woman was made for man, not man for the woman. Now there are many scriptures which are susceptible of widely differing interpretations. I challenge anybody to give me any alternative interpretation. Woman was made for the man. There it is. You can like it or lump it. <laughs> but that's what the Bible says. This defines my position. I was made by somebody. I was made for something. I was made specifically for the man. I was made out of the man. I was brought to the man by God the Creator. Now, as you know, I don't have a man. I'm a widow, twice widowed, and I have spent more than six-sevenths of my life single. So the implications of what I have just said for a single woman are very broad and extremely important to me, and I haven't got time to go into all those things this morning. But let me testify at least to this. These facts, which I consider to be absolutely fundamental and unequivocal, affect my relationship to all men. Not only did they affect my relationship to my two husbands during my very brief years of marriage, they affect how I treat all men. In the professional world, and I happen to be the only female faculty member at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. I am, first of all, a writer. I'm only an adjunct professor, which means next to nothing. <laughs> but I am a writer, and I have to be judged by exactly the same standards that any male writer would be judged. I have no right to appeal to my femininity as an excuse for not doing as adequate a job as a man. So my attitude toward my husband, toward all men in the professional world, and certainly toward Christian men in the church, is defined by these facts which I've just reiterated. Now what does it mean for a woman to be made for a man? One of the most obvious areas which, again, the feminist ignores altogether or rigidly refuses to understand as significant is the physical body. And this, of course, there's an, in, there is an infuriating stubbornness about facts. Nobody can deny that there are some very obvious physical differences between men and women. We all know strapping women who can throw a ball farther and change a tire faster than some men. We all know some men who probably can change a diaper better than some women. This proves nothing at all. These are the exceptions. Women are generally shorter. They generally weigh less. They generally have less physical strength in certain terms. Any doctor will tell you that women can bear pain better than men, so in a sense they are physically stronger. Women live longer than men, so there are all kinds of things which balance each other out. But the physical body has metaphysical significance. 
Now, I happen to be a Christian who takes what is called a sacramental view of life. By that, I mean that the world is never seen as an end in itself. My sexuality is not an end in itself. It's the visible sign of invisible realities. Now, what are these visible signs? I sometimes hesitate to even have to talk about these things because I feel as if I'm belaboring the obvious. And yet we have been so squeezed into the world's mold that we have forgotten the obvious. We have been sold a bill of goods, taken for a ride, and somebody has to stand up and say, wait, any peasant, any Stone Age Indian could tell you these things. You've forgotten them. You're ignoring them. But let's stop and take a look at the fact that the physical body has metaphysical significance. That what is the female body created for? Obviously, to receive, to carry, to bear, to nurture. What is the male body created for? To protect, to initiate, to act upon, to lead, to rule, to cherish. The word husband means to care for. Now, we can't deny those facts. Obviously, in the sovereignty of God, not every woman or every man ever gets to use the standard equipment. There are many women who never get married so they never have children. There are many women who get married who never have children. There are many women who get married and have children who never breastfeed those children. So there's a great deal of standard equipment that goes, goes unused. At our seminary, <laughs> a year or so ago, I heard from the platform, a woman who calls herself a Christian feminist, ridicule the women who look upon childbearing as the highest earthly good, as if using your womb or your breasts could possibly bring any kind of fulfillment. She was despising motherhood and holding up professional life as the summum bonum. And there were some horse laughs in the audience when she said this, the audience being largely made up of males. And I wanted to leap to my feet and ask how many of you men would feel that you had been fulfilled in your earthly life if you never got to use the standard equipment with which you were born. Now, we are creatures of God, and this was God's design. This wasn't ours, as C.S. Lewis says. You would never have thought of sex. <laughs> if you had thought of it, you couldn't possibly have had the courage to take the risk that sex involves. But femininity, in its essence, means to receive, to bear, to carry, to respond, to be acted upon. The highest form of femininity is seen here on earth in motherhood. Now, what does motherhood mean? It means going down into death to give life to someone else. Mary is the epitome of obedience and motherhood. Her response to the angel was, Be it unto me according to thy word. Behold, the handmaid of the Lord. And for this reason, the church and the soul throughout all Christian history have been seen as feminine. Whether man or woman, the soul has been seen as feminine because the soul responds, the soul receives, the soul is acted upon, the soul obeys. And this brings us to my last point, which is the mystery. 
I'll go over the first three since most of you have forgotten them. One, are we different? Two, were we made by someone? Three, were we made for something? And four, what is this mystery? Now, obviously, I cannot explain the mystery. If the Apostle Paul himself ended up his definitive passage in Ephesians 5 by confessing that even for him, this whole relationship between man and woman was a great mystery, then far be it from us to fathom all that's involved here. But he referred to the relationship between Christ and the Church. These physical realities that we've been talking about, what is unmistakably bodied forth in the physical reality of the male and the female, has eternal implications. It has metaphysical implications, which we are not at liberty to tamper with. Paul said, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. And again, to go back to what is going on in this so-called Christian feminist movement, and I think that it is extremely important that we understand how radical some of their ideas may be. The passage in Ephesians 5 was talked about in a workshop on egalitarian marriage, and their constant cry is that all Paul was talking about was mutual submission. We all have to submit to everybody else. And of course, if there is a, an eternally shifting foundation, then there is no possibility of movement. A foundation has to be solid. And God knew this when he set things up as he did here. It's not a question of both submitting to each other constantly. There's a, an order of rule and authority. So in this workshop, it was insisted that where it says, Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. I finally raised the question after 45 minutes of listening to this talk on egalitarian marriage. I asked the lady if she saw any difference at all between the way a husband is to submit to his wife and the way a wife is to submit to her husband. And the answer was no. I then asked if I might be free to read this passage interchanging husband for wife, wife for husband, church for Christ, and Christ for the church. And she said yes. So here is the way it sounds. Husbands, be subject to your wives as to the Lord. For the wife is the head of the husband as the church is the head of Christ his body, and is himself its savior. As Christ is subject to the church, so let husbands also be subject in everything to their wives. And at this point, I was stopped. <laughs> no, they said, you can't carry the analogy that far. The entire talk had been using this passage, which is analogical, to prove that Paul is what Paul means is that when black when he says black is white he means white is black when he says wives subject yourselves to your husbands he means husbands subject yourselves to your wives interchangeably so we either accept the Im the imagery which we've been given in scripture and throughout the old testament god is represented as the bridegroom the people of israel as the bride God is our Father. The imagery which is used to refer to the deity is masculine, with the exception of a very few poetical references. Even Paul used a poetical reference which would equate him with a female. He said, I'm like a nurse among you with her children. But there's no warrant for referring to the Trinity in female terms. We are given this imagery. We may question why. We may ask the obvious questions, does God have sex? And we're back to the fact that this is the way it was presented to us, and this is one of the givens of our existence, and with this we must be content. It was Christ who taught us to pray, 
our Father, which art in heaven. The caucus, incidentally, began with the singing of what they call purged hymns. Dear Lord and Father of Mankind was regarded as sexist. It was changed to Dear Mother, Father of us all. Now, these are evangelical women. Please remember this. And they were returning to 30 states, to their own churches, where they were going at this hammer and tongs to purge all the hymnals, to change the language of scripture, to teach people to pray, Our Mother, which art in heaven. So, if this imagery means anything at all, it is definitive of our relationships. It is the highest form of image that God could think of, if we may put it that way, to illustrate the relationship which exists between Christ and the Church. The man is in the, head, is in the place of Christ. The woman is in reference to the Church. So this is why both the soul and the Church have been seen as female throughout Christian history. We refer to the Church with female pronouns. So if we understand that there is a mystery involved here, that there are heavenly truths at stake which go far beyond the realm of politics, sociology, or economics, I think we will evade or avoid a great many useless arguments. I've often said that I would have no basis at all for argument with a secular feminist because everything that I have to say on the subject of masculinity and femininity or the role of women is based on my understanding of scripture and there would be no basis at all for a discussion. To the Christian feminist, I try to point out that our arguments must be theological and not political or sociological or economic. And it is almost impossible to get the Christian feminist to discuss the whole question on a purely theological basis. They start with sociology and they attempt to revise theology in order to make this palatable. I'm grateful to God for the position which he has given to me as a woman. If anybody could possibly know me, read my books, hear me speak, or know anything at all about the way I conduct my life, he couldn't, by any stretch of the imagination, conclude that I'm a woman who does not believe in the use of gifts or in the full responsibility of being a person before God. But I don't want anybody calling me a person. I don't want anybody saying, I'd like to know you just as a human being and not as a woman. That's nonsense. There is no such thing as a human being that isn't either a man or a woman. If anybody says, do you know Elizabeth Elliot? And you say yes, and they say, well, what's she like? You don't even have to bother with the first obvious fact, she is a woman. You might go on to say, well, she's middle-aged, she's tall, she's this, she's that, she's the other thing. These, these, these things are all part of what this person is. And to me, the most glorious of all earthly distinctions is the sexual distinction. It's certainly the first thing you notice about anybody. If you ask people, what's the first thing you notice about people, they'll usually say, well, their eyes or their hands or their height or something. But if you ask them if they've noticed their sex, then, of course, the question, the answer always is that you would notice their sex first, and you find yourself very unsettled if you're walking down the street and you see a human being coming towards you <laughs> whose sex is in doubt. <laughs> it's the first thing we want to know about any human being. It is of enormous importance. It is the term of my existence. It defines my limits. It embodies my gifts. As a woman, I have an entirely different set of gifts than a man. I'm not saying that we have no gifts in common. Of course, there are all kinds of gifts which we have in common. Paul, who was most careful 
to outline the differences of roles of men and women in the church was also the one who was most careful to give credit to the women who had helped him in his work. He was most gracious to women in his thanks and in his mention of the things that they had done for him. He was most meticulous in allowing the use of gifts. Obviously, if Paul had to make a rule about praying and prophesying, the praying and prophesying of women, then he was allowing praying and prophesying. He didn't say, stop praying and prophesying. He said, cover your heads. So there are all kinds of false dichotomies which are set up sometimes by feminists who say to be a, an obedient, submissive woman is to be a zero, to commit suicide of the personality, which is a phrase that I heard used by a feminist, to be weak, indecisive, incapable, mute, and to reject the responsibility to use one's gifts. There can, nothing could be further from the truth. God has called us to be men and to be women. Our sexuality is a call, it's a command, and it's a privilege. Men be men, women be women, for God's sake. Shall we have questions now? It was how could Mrs. Elliot say what she uh, did and uh, be consistent with her own life of being a missionary? And uh, I don't know if they referred to your position as professor at Gordon Conwell or not, but the implication was uh, her life is an entire uh, denial of her position as to woman's responsibility in teaching and preaching. And I, when I read that, I wondered how you would respond to that. Clearly, it would be very irresponsible and very dishonest for me to be doing the things I do if I hadn't thought through this question. It's a very obvious question that needs to be asked. If the things that I'm saying are not fully understood, I can see how there could be some criticism of inconsistency. This gets into the specifics of how I see my role in the church and in the home as opposed to my role in the world. First, I would start by saying that so far as I can tell from Scripture, the roles of men and women, insofar as physically possible, are maybe interchangeable in the world. That is, a woman might be a corporation executive in the world, a humble communicant in her church, and a submissive wife at home without any contradiction. The ideal wife spoken of in, the, in Proverbs was a woman of almost unbelievable efficiency in taking care of her family, <laughs> but don't forget she had maidens who helped her. She was also a businesswoman. We have the examples of women who did jobs that normally men did, Deborah and Miriam and Lydia, who was a seller of purple and various other women who are, let's not forget it, exceptions in the Bible. You can't build any doctrines on these exceptions. But they did apparently do these things, and I myself have had to do, um, have had to be a career woman and compete with men in certain areas. My answer as to how I can teach in the seminary, where I am dealing with theological subjects and teaching a mixed group, mixed audiences, very simply, that seminary is not a church. In both the church and the home, now I don't, I may be stepping on toes here, there may be people who would say the seminary is a church, so that's a matter for further debate. But in the church and in the home, as I understand the scripture, these are the two areas in which this mystery that we've been talking about is guarded. There are heavenly verities at stake in the church and in the home. Christ and the church is represented in the home by the husband 
and the wife, the husband taking the place of Christ, the woman taking the place of the church. In the church, likewise, the authority must be vested in men because they stand in the place of Christ. Now, because these heavenly verities are not at stake in the secular world, we are more free to experiment. As a Christian woman, I still insist that my attitude toward all men, whether they're Christian, whether they accept my position or not, is affected by my understanding of the nature of femininity and masculinity. I am not invited to join faculty meetings at Gordon-Conwell, but if I were, you can be sure that I would not be there in any sense of competition or trying to prove that I was just as intelligent as that crowd of men. I do happen to be on the board of another Christian institution and also the only female with 19 men. My responsibility as a member of that board is equal to the men. My behavior toward those men is affected by my Christian understanding. Does that make any sense? The question is what the meaning of head covering, and this, of course, is one of the most difficult questions. The only thing I can say is that it, it does seem to me to be a cultural example of something which Paul used. It had meaning in his culture, and he used it and freighted it with spiritual meaning for that time. And I think it's, it's perfectly plain that the roles, the sex roles, may be very varied in different cultures, that the role of the male and the role of the, of the female vary greatly in different cultures and at different times. There has never been any society which has existed where the roles were completely, where the distinctions were obfuscated until the last decade or so in our country. In all societies, there have been clear, sharp distinctions between the sexes. And exactly how these principles, which I've been talking about this morning, are to be enacted in a given society, I think, are, are very variable. It seems to me that there are um, ways in which, culturally, we may signify our understanding. And this brings me back to a question which would be related to the first one as to how I operate within my understanding of my position in the church. A cultural uh, fact which I, which I take into account is the 11 o'clock service on Sunday morning in churches. I never preach in a Sunday morning church service. Now, we have no scriptural warrant for saying that there's anything particularly set apart about the 11 o'clock service as opposed to any other service in the church. To me, in our society, the 11 o'clock Sunday morning service is the apex of the corporate worship of a local church. And it seems to me that within that context, the proclamation of the word and the administration of the sacraments should be in the hands of a man. I would never speak in a Sunday morning church service. I will never speak in any meeting in which women have charge of everything, unless it's a women's meeting. There are a great many churches nowadays who think it's cute to have a women's Sunday, and they have the women giving out the programs and ushering and leading the singing and taking up the collection, and then they'd like to have me preach, and I get a lot of invitations to do this. I turn them all down. If Even if it's a a Sunday night service or any other kind of a church service, if it is within the framework of a local church, then I much prefer to have a man in charge of the meeting who is the authority figure who turns over to me for a limited period the position in the pulpit. And it's understood then that what I do is under his authority. I think usurping authority is the key word that Paul was getting at. And the women who refuse to wear the veils were women who were taking issue with this question of authority. So whether or not the wearing of a veil is a necessary sign in our own day is, of course, debatable. There are Christian groups that feel very strongly that it is. Obviously, I don't, or I'd be wearing a veil right now. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. 
and will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms.